Hey, you're listening to Distributed Dialogues, a collaborative show between the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network and Distributed Magazine. My name is Rick. And I'm Dave. And in each episode, we'll introduce you to the people who are using blockchain technology to change the way we interact with the world around us. Blockchain technology has catapulted us into a fast-paced technological present of rapid software development and industry disruption. It seems like every day a new project is proposing greater efficiency or protection of some aspect of our lives, healthcare, privacy, data storage, the list goes on. But at the same time, the role of the human, the developer, the citizen, is more significant than ever. Blockchain technology promises a more accountable future, However, if managed incorrectly, it could also make more room for digital tyranny. So today's episode explores the various ways that people and organizations plan to use blockchain technology to do social good without solely leaving control to algorithms. In this episode, we hear from a human rights activist and an early internet pioneer about how blockchain technology could check and balance power. In between, we talk with Flux, an open-source blockchain-based project that is trying to revolutionize agriculture. We speak first with Alex Gladstein. He's chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation and a believer in leveraging blockchain technology for the good of humanity. Um, So I guess to really just sort of get us started, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself uh, and how you got started uh, doing what you're doing in the first place? Sure. So since 2007, I've been working for the Human Rights Foundation, which is a nonprofit based in New York City that focuses on uh, promoting individual rights and human rights in closed societies. So uh, we work with people who live under uh, authoritarian societies, authoritarian regimes. And I think the best way to look at this is, uh, you know, does a society have separation of powers? You know, is there an independent judiciary? Is there an independent legislature that keeps checks and balances on the executive? Is there press freedom? Uh, Are there civil society organizations like local watchdog groups, uh, local human rights groups? Um, And the answer is no for about 90 countries. So for about 4 billion people in this world, they live in a country that doesn't really have these checks and balances that what we would call more open societies have. And they, of course, uh, are in sort of special situations where they don't have the same, um, let's say, helplines that we have. I mean, we have the, here in San Francisco, you can count on the ACLU or the EFF or, um, for example, all sorts of like nonprofit legal entities to assist people whose rights have been violated, which happens, of course, all the time. But in a place like Cameroon or Vietnam, none of these things exist. And the government has a total total control, basically, over uh, all of the um, legal activity uh, and, 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 and press activity. And there, it's very hard to hold these governments accountable. So our strategy, basically, is to learn how these authoritarian systems work, um, figure out how to help people from inside these societies tell their story, uh, help get them more funding and support and uh, basically technology to help them uh, make their country a little bit more free and fair. Uh, A lot of this is sort of incremental. Sometimes you get a big breakthrough like we just saw in Malaysia where the people actually kind of overthrew peacefully a a one-party system that had been in power for more than a half century and that's really breathtaking but normally it's not as dramatic. Normally it's sort of incremental. Unfortunately what we're seeing today is that it's incremental in the other direction, right? So you're seeing popularly elected leaders in places like Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, 
uh, over the years kind of erode democracy. And that's actually kind of almost more popular than the, than, than, than the strengthening of democracy. So this is kind of the area where the Human Rights Foundation focuses on. And was there like an event in your life or some piece of news or anything that might have served as like a sort of nexus of influence for you to do this type of work or what initially got you uh, to the HRF? Sure. So I actually started a summer internship with the Human Rights Foundation in 2007. And my job was to put together um, backpacks of information and other goods that would be uh, sent into Cuba uh, for the Underground Library Network. So at the time, and, and largely still today, uh, books and movies you know, are only legal in Cuba if the Communist Party approves of them, of them right? So you can't have whatever you want. Um, it's highly controlled. And internet at the time was almost impossible to get, and still today is extremely expensive and very restricted and controlled. So people are brainwashed, right? So um, it, it, it was fun to kind of participate, and my job was to you know, help put together different movies you know that were subtitled or dubbed into spanish and different ebooks uh, whether it was animal farm by george orwell or movies like braveheart or viva Vendetta. uh you know these things made a big impact and people would basically take the things we would send and hold little discussion groups in their homes uh, privately with a handful of people um, but that started to grow and become a movement you know which which has really been pushing the cuban government for, for greater reform uh, in, in recent years. So that was my first project and it was very exciting to me and I decided I wanted to continue working there and I got the very fortunate opportunity to get a full-time position and I've been working there ever since. I've heard of like El Paquete before in mm -hmm. Cuba, like the USBs and uh, devices that people pass around for information. And then I've also heard the government has started like, I think it's La Mochila, the backpack basically, which is like their own sort of like subsidiary program of that. But I've also heard from like Cuban people that I know that it's, you know, not nearly as fun or engaging as the stuff that they get from outside of the country too. So. Um, I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah, and I'll say two things about that. Number one, our work in Cuba inspired our work in North Korea, where now we run a program called Flash Drives for Freedom, where we collect flash drives that either people don't use anymore, like a lot of you listening probably have a flash drive at home that is obsolete because you use you know, Web 2.0 in the cloud or whatever. Um, great, you can send it to flash drives, the address at flashdrivesforfreedom.org and we can uh, put uh, content on it that North Korean refugees and defectors choose, whether it's movies or interviews or encyclopedic content. Uh, and we'll send it into North Korea to people who don't have access to the internet and it becomes like a window to the outside world. So Flash Drives for Freedom is a very exciting program. At the same time, I think this dichotomy you spoke of, of like the people having one kind of information network in Cuba and then the government trying to create its own version. You know, that's happening with cryptocurrencies uh, around the world. And you're seeing this in Venezuela play out in real time. This kind of this crypto war where the people are trying to accumulate and hold Bitcoin so that they can have value and feed their families. And the government, while it's at the same time arresting people who are mining for Bitcoin and basically trying to control uh, the means of production of Bitcoin and trying to control the, the exchange of Bitcoin, they're also, they've created their own kind of centralized cryptocurrency, right? The Petro, where the immediate use case was literally just to raise cash. You know, this is a cash-strapped authoritarian regime that's cut off from a lot of the world with, with sanctions, right? Because of the fact that they torture their people and that they kill their people and they abuse the rights of their people. So what they've done is they, they were able to convince China, Russia to, to give them hundreds of millions of dollars in exchange for Petros. Now, of course, it's a failed project that no one's going to use, but you know, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more governments do this 
to different varieties of success. I actually think you're going to see the Chinese government be very successful here, where they're going to create a digital national currency that will be completely surveillable and confiscatable, and you know it's going to help them control the population more, which is which is really striking, and really this helps us steer. Uh, at least what I want to talk about a little bit is um, the really important distinction between like centralized or editable uh, blockchains and cryptocurrency projects versus versus decentralized ones, and talk about some of the comparisons to, in political science, uh, distributed power networks like democracies versus dictatorships. You know, where you have, yeah, you have incentives to have a dictatorship, right? In political science, it's easy. You don't have to deal with courts or the media or private property. You just do whatever you want. It's faster, right? You can do a lot more transactions per second, right? Um, but there's incredible power and beauty in distributed networks and democracy. And you can look at the difference between Taiwan and China, right? So you, you can actually see a lot of innovation, creativity. Um, when you compare democracies to dictatorships around the world, whether it's Costa Rica compared with Cuba, Angola compared with Namibia, Belarus compared with Estonia, uh, North Korea compared with South Korea, anywhere on earth, Tunisia compared with Saudi Arabia, you see a lot more um, peaceful interaction, a lot of patents, uh, more patent rates, more in creativity, more inventiveness. You see better economic performance, higher literacy rates, health, all this stuff. Open societies are long-term better than closed ones, but they're harder. You know, when you really think about it, it took thousands of years for humans to figure out how to govern themselves without one person in charge. And I think you're looking at like a highly compressed format of that in, in the cryptocurrency blockchain space, where the idea was started with Bitcoin, which no one owns, and of course no one can control, not one, one entity can control it. Um, but it spawned like a bunch of uh, projects where people do control it. And you're seeing people jostle with this, and, and I think it's important to remember this concept of, of decentralization and why it matters uh, when we're having these conversations and looking at some of these projects. And I think this sort of relates back to the idea. Uh, I watched a talk you did with Vince Means before at the Oslo Freedom Forum, uh, and you spoke about how there's very little attention given to democracy tech. Like, you know, we have ag tech, transit tech, and everything, all the different aspects of our life, except this very super important one with, you know, democratic tech um, and sort of tech for government is sort of left out, and very few people are paying a lot of attention to it. And I think, you know, blockchain and crypto has a huge ability to engage that sort of gap. And maybe you're talking about that a little before, but can you talk about how people might target governmental tech through blockchain and crypto uh, and decentralized technologies? Yeah, and I think I want to draw a distinction. I mean, there exists GovTech, sure. right, and civic tech. These are different. So these are like civ tech for municipalities getting cities to be better uh, functioning for their people. Uh, GovTech for Ideally, when you look at it, you're hoping for more transparency inside uh, democracies. Demtech would be kind of like getting power back in the hands of the people, in my, my view. It doesn't really exist. I mean, you can't really Google it. It doesn't really, it's not really out there yet. Um, there's some mentions of it, but it's an opportunity. And, and what's cool is I think you can probably make a lot of money in this space. When you talk about stuff like decentralized money networks, when you talk about stuff like potentially decentralized VPNs, when you talk about censorship-resistant money and communications, I think there's going to be huge demand for that, um, whether it's from a small community of people who care or whether it's because 
the systems that are built on decentralized networks can one day be performant better than systems built on centralized networks. Either way, I think there's tremendous opportunity to both impact the planet and make a lot of money, which is kind of a first for the human rights space. So I think people should be paying close attention to this. And I've been having conversations with a bunch of folks who work in, for the, you know, where they're guided in their investments and their philosophy by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Which is interesting because when you actually look at the SDGs, there's 17 of them. Uh, there, there's basically zero mention of the word democracy, one mention of the word human rights, one mention of the word corruption, no mentions of the word press freedom, no mentions of the word independent judiciary or separation of powers. I mean, it's very clearly an authoritarian project. Now, you can certainly do good by, by trying to align your investments with the SDGs, but you're missing half of humanity. You're missing all of the parts of free expression and, and free and fair elections and, and civil society and creativity and collaboration and innovation that, that make us very special as a, as, as, as a species, as a, as a human race. So um, I, I think that uh, the SDGs are incomplete and that something like a Demtech focus or thinking about maybe adding to the SDGs which is probably unlikely given that authoritarian governments control the SDGs, but, but at least getting people to think about and to know and to get excited about that they can, they can build technology, whether it's scaling Bitcoin or creating a decentralized VPN or communications network that governments can't take down, you know, censorship-resistant storage. All these things like, could be really helpful for people uh, and at the same time could be quite lucrative. So, I mean, I think this is an interesting area to, to look at. I mean, even things like... Some of these new Bitcoin wallets are super cool. There's all kinds of innovation happening with how it can protect user rights and kind of confuse authorities who are trying to sort of illegally conduct surveillance. A lot of these tools that users can own can help pre prevent that and might be like basically effective in terms of uh, targeting an audience of people who may want to buy it, right? So again, can we find this intersection of like technology that is going to decentralize power and uh, empower people uh, and at the same time uh, be a good business model and make people money. And that, that is like very possible right now, which is kind of exciting. Because, you know, we have such an ability to do great things with this technology, um, but we also have the opportunity to fail magnificently uh, ourselves and societies at large. So in your sort of mind, then how do you think people that are developing technologies or working at companies that are developing technologies can remain cognizant of the sort of social ramifications of what these technolo uh, technologies represent outside of their own product. You know, how can you be aware um, of both the good and harm uh, that your technology can cause, uh, if in the wrong hands? Yeah, I think I would urge people to when they're building stuff or raising money for stuff or promoting stuff, um, when, you, when you're working with a centralized system that's you know, permissioned or controlled, you have to remember it's only as good as the humans behind it, right? So um, that might be okay in some countries, right? Estonia has this beautiful, really cool uh, virtual residency program, and some countries like Taiwan are going to put uh, maybe, you know, you get to issue visas on the blockchain and there's going to be some fun stuff that, that people do in open societies where, where we can trust the government, right? Where we do trust the government, where Estonia is not going to be kidnapping you in the middle of the night, right? But what happens if Putin invades Estonia tomorrow, which seems like increasingly less ridiculous of an idea? Well, then he's going to take that system and he's going to use it to spy on people. So, I mean, you know, again, getting back to the idea of, you know, can we build in a direction 
that benefits privacy and, and that's open and decentralized? And can we build stuff on it that is performant better than the, other, than the alternatives? And that's sort of this whole promise of the Web 3.0, right? Like, like and, and obviously smart people are investing a lot of money in this space. Like, can we have massive networks that, that are more kind of peer-to-peer, that are, that are more uh, built in a way where you get to own your own data? I mean, there's nothing more I'd love to live in a world where I could go to the doctor and be like, yeah, um, do you want to see my medical records? Uh, sure, here you go for like 10 minutes and then, and then I'm taking them back, right? The, the, the technology is not there for that yet, and it may never be there, but I mean, it's certainly something we can strive towards. And I, I think there's all kinds of fun stuff that people are working on with, you know, partial knowledge proofs and, you know, showing you just the minimum amount of information that you need with my data, you know, whether it's in the world of voting or identification or whatever. I think there's a lot to be done there that's, that's not even necessarily in the blockchain space, but, but generally in the technology space when you talk about encryption or, or zero knowledge proof stuff. I mean, I, I hope there's a lot more research that gets done in that area because we need it, right? Um, but it just in terms of censorship resistance and, and decentralization, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot we can, we, we can hope for based on what we have now. Um, and we're going to need to build up in this area, build this out and get people excited about it and get funding in here and get, get people fired up. And, and so for all the craziness and ridiculousness in the it's a sort of crypto industry, um, the fact that kind of at the, at the heart exists this idea that, that we can disintermediate arbitrary power and that, and that people can make decisions and that people can own their own data, it keeps me very optimistic. Like for all the ridiculous kind of frills and, and parties and all this sort of stuff that, that, that is maybe not so desirable, um, you know, what started this whole thing is, is this idea that I can send you money and no one can stop it. And that that's cool. That's, that's very revolutionary. You know, when you, when you read anthropological history, like sapiens or something like that, and you're looking at how did humans advance, and you're looking at, you know, the cognitive revolution, agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution. Well, I mean, humans never were able to coordinate globally before without knowing uh, each other, without trusting each other. So the fact that we can do that with money, that's interesting. So, okay, I think may, maybe we're onto something here, and we have to cut through some of the nonsense in the air, in the, in the, in the, in the, climate in the industry right now but but some of these founders are brilliant and some of these projects people are working on are are really changing the world so so it is kind of exciting so we don't need to be too jaded or pessimistic i guess i, I think it is the only way we stop the the wechatization of of our lives is through the through building decentralized technology so i think people really need to 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 get that um and understand that the technology itself won't help everything. It won't save us. It'll be a piece of the puzzle, but we need old school, like civil liberties, human rights advocacy. We need to support in America groups like the ACLU and, and EFF and things like that. And, and abroad, we need to support people fighting against authoritarianism. And, and once you can give these people the tools that, that technologists are creating and you have this kind of back and forth and dialogue between um, technologists building decentralized technology, getting them to educate and talk to civil society leaders and, and, and lawyers and journalists, that's kind of where we want to be. We want to get to that area. So that's what we're doing at the Human Rights Foundation is trying to cultivate that dialogue. So hopefully we can, we can just do more and more of that at the, at the Oslo Freedom Forum event series we run and, and, and through some other programs we're doing. I guess I did have one last question for, and it's related to what you were saying, and that is, like, in some crypto communities, there there's a conversation about, like, ultimate personal freedom and the creation of sort of, like, free states and free societies outside of central governance. 
Um, do you think, and I guess at the moment some of these are a little bit more fringe than they are mainstream, but do you think crypto and blockchain um, and related technologies will have a greater ability to bring us together or perhaps separate us? It's a little trite, but technology is agnostic, right? I mean, everybody says it, but it's true, right? So look at social media. I mean, it can, it can cause great harm, but it can also do great good. Uh, I think that, again, it depends on the character of the blockchain project or the cryptocurrency. I, I really do think that decentralized, um, open blockchain projects will be really positive for humanity uh, and will bring us, maybe not bring, bring us together is kind of a weird way to think about it, but, but allow us to exist in a more peaceful way might be a better way of looking at it. Um, you know, and I'm not, this idea that like we're all going to be anarchic and individualized and cut off from each other, that's not really the future that I see this bringing us towards. I think it is, it is a little bit more like maybe, maybe we get to build trust in, among communities again and things like that. Um, I don't really know. But all I know is that the, going down the road of the centralized technology, going down the road of uh, government and corporations teaming up like they are in China to control every aspect of our lives, that's a nightmare. We don't want to go there. And, and it's really difficult to get out of that hole once you're in it. So for the average person in China today, you're not only like afraid of disrupting the system or rocking the boat, but you're massively disincentivized. If you do so, you're living in a world where you may not be able to get fast internet or a visa or a loan for your house or these basic day-to-day -day things that you need for your family. And ultimately, family is the most important thing. So the Chinese government knows that and has created this system that, that people will, will find it very hard to fight back against. So what do I know? Well, I know that that's probably not great. We don't want that. Um, and, and what can we build with decentralized technology? We don't really know yet. I mean, I mean, you know, there are going to be negative impacts, but we need to keep studying it. And there's not enough study and research being done at that intersection of society, politics, and crypto, right? So I'd like to see maybe more more thinking in that area. Um, but but clearly, I think there's there's definitely a a world in which um, inspired by the vision of the original internet, right, where where anyone can enter and anyone can transact value and, and no one can really censor or stop that. I think that's much more of a positive world than not. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sitting down with us and uh, talking about what the future might have in store for us. Well, I, I hope to inspire some developers and investors and people working on these projects to build open decentralized uh, networks. I think that would really be great. So we'll keep talking. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. There's little doubt that checking the power of authoritarian states and protecting individual liberties are lofty and noble goals. The underlying idea here is that the blockchain infrastructure is ideal for creating an open source software for secure and private transactions of data. This principle has created new models for businesses, marketplaces, and perhaps more recently, sustainable agriculture. Tatiana Moroz, host of The Tatiana Show, joined us in speaking with Blake Buris and Kylan McClintock of Flux. Flux is an early stage blockchain project that enables a feedback loop of sensor data to improve agriculture and help subsistence farmers. 
Hi everybody, this is Tatiana Moroz from Distributed Dialogues, coming to you from San Francisco, where I'm sitting down with some new friends I made from Flux. Welcome to the show. Guys, nice to, nice to speak with you. If you could give a little bit of intro who you are, that'd be great, because now it's two people, so. Yeah, Tatiana, thanks for having us. Uh, I'm Blake Burris, I'm the CEO and project lead on a project called Flux out of Boulder, Colorado in Israel. Uh, we are bringing a new protocol to the, the party, the world stage. Um, for facilitating environmental data. We have IoT hardware we'll talk about a bit later. Hi, I'm Kylan Klintock. I'm leading this proof of impact play, and we're dedicating 10% of total allocation to impact projects to scale the protocol in the developing world as well. Proof of impact, what exactly is that all about? Right, so when we look at the future of this planet, with we're predicting 10 billion people that we must sustainably feed and house by 2050, and without wrecking our environmental systems that we rely on, it's about creating that future of prosperity and abundance that you know the future is building towards that we all want to live in while working in parallel with our complex natural ecosystems. That's why it's so important to unlock the potential and be able to work these um, large global connected systems, ocean data, how that affects climate data and temperature, and trees and soil um, aridness and droughts in the future. So being able to have access to all this data and optimize grows and sustainable timber, be able to weather throughout droughts and still provide that amount of food, that amount of resources to the world while retaining our, our biodiversity of this planet, that's what Proof of Impact is all about it's through those kind of partnerships with NGOs on the ground that are working with subsistence farmers. Wow, that sounds really intriguing. I like things that are thinking about more than just the money. Um, tell me a little bit about what inspired this project and a little bit more concretely what exactly it is. Well, I certainly did on the, on the, uh, on the just about the money, I certainly don't want to be accused of a money grab, you know. Well, it sounds nice putting 50 mil in the bank. Uh, we want to do something that we could uh, really pour ourselves into and, and uh, achieve some real impact. Uh, so the, the, the project has its origins in uh, former military out of Israel in uh, sensor technology and uh, distributed intelligence. It was very intriguing to me. I got involved in the project uh, about two years ago um, through an uh, incubator in New York, just at first mentoring, but got increasingly intrigued by the technology and the team. and. Uh, at that time, it was, blockchain wasn't involved. The idea was that later we would kind of track like uh, provenance of plants and things grown kind of because we'd have all this IoT data and we just kind of put it on the back burner. And when all the rage was, you know, last year and so was happening, we took a hard look at how we might tokenize this and legitimately build something really exciting. Wow, that's wild. So um, how long have you been working on this project for? Uh, the team's been working on it for uh, close to three years. Um, we, this, this recent incarnation of kind of combining the IoT data uh, with a tokenization model, uh, the distributed AI, and kind of the whole kit and caboodle is about uh, nine months we've been working on. Okay, great. So, so um, what, what stage are you at right now when, when you're communicating it to the audience here? You know, what do you hope to get out of this conference? Because <laughs> it's been, you know, very international. There's an east-west kind of 
theme going on? Mm. Do you think that this is something that's only applicable for the United States, or is this a global project? Uh, yeah, having originated in Israel, it's much like being in Dutch. You know, you, your, mar- your home market is so small that you naturally think internationally from the get-go. Um, a lot of my experience in the last five and eight years has been international anyway, building projects and developer platforms in 20 countries. Um, I was naturally intrigued by the idea of taking uh, technologies to markets, and I love the sort of blockchain ethos around serving the, the underserved, like four billion or whatever the number is, not just kind of a five percent sort of solution. Mm-hmm. Great. Right. So, uh, with the open hardware protocol that's been under development and the distributed intelligence piece, I think we're finally at a point with blockchains where they can be scalable enough to actually create that incentivization mechanism to unsilo data streams from all these different environmental realms. So we have air, water, soil, satellite imagery, drone data all coming in, and that's where the blockchain comes in is the verification and origin of that data and incentivizing access to that. We're kind of using IoT data mm-hmm. to understand and basically decode Mother Nature so we can understand forestry, we understand how plants grow, and by understanding these natural systems, we have this, mm-hmm. this where the distributed AI piece comes in. We're going to allow entities to run what we call perception engines, and those have their own utility for those organizations and their end users. But the, what gets really exciting is the correlation between those things, be able to correlate data from the natural systems. And then by doing so, we can mimic Mother Nature, maybe improve like kind of super crops you know, improve fisheries and bring this, this levels of efficiency, you know, maybe far exceed what we've been used to in kind of Western markets. And we have, um, we're building out an ethos around this working within the natural systems. So the goal is not to create the most efficient way to find bluefin tuna and hunt it to extinction, right? (laughs) That's completely against the ethos that we're creating. And that's where um, access to this data co-op comes into play with a token curator registry. That's getting a little into the weeds. So actually, I wanted to know, when, when people have the token, do they get to see where it goes? Like, how, how does the token aspect play into it? Yeah, so the token really comes in to incentivize data contribution. Currently, there's expert growers around the world or organizations that have specific data in a certain realm, like carbon data, methane data, satellite imagery data. But right now, there's not a global standard way to contribute that um, and get rewarded for that contribution. And then another way of actually creating a custom perception engine, basically custom machine learning model to be able to take the relevant data capsules that um, an organization or government or academic research or NGO needs to find those insights. So it's really about the insights that can be derived from that data, that ma- that mass data set, and uh, paying on a pro rata basis back to those who contributed that data. That data is valuable. It would be nice to see some sort of a, a way to allow that access to not necessarily be correlated with you know your it's financial sort of play of like incentive. Yeah, exactly. So ten percent, like I said, of our our funding is allocated to those kind of ah. impact plays. So an NGO that is trying to regenerate um, soil through optimized grazing patterns that mimic um, ancient migration of like wildebeest in Africa or trying to um, prevent desertification. Those are the exact kind of projects that um, we want to help out and provide access to these data capsules for.
We're happy we could bring wildebeest into your podcast. It's you know what? It's <laughs> every day, pretty much, these wildebeests are always always causing problems. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. One more time, what is the website? Uh, FluxToken.io. Excellent. Thanks so See much. See you there. Guys. Thanks, Tatiana. Great. Thank you so All right. much. Thank you. It's great. Lastly, we got to sit down with Brian Bellendorf, a champion of the open software community and one of the founders of the Apache Software Foundation. He talks to us about the importance of human governance in a time of great technological advancement. My name is Brian Bellendorf, and I'm executive director of Hyperledger, a project at the Linux Foundation. First, I'd just like to hear about sort of like what um, the open source movement was in the early 90s and I, I guess maybe 80s too. Yeah, well, I uh, didn't discover the internet until I was yeah. a freshman at Berkeley in 91. Um, and when I landed, it felt like this other planet, right? It felt like this secret that had been kept from everybody for so long because you could send a message to somebody on the other side of the planet for free, right? You could go to a Gopher server, an FTP server, you could, uh, and find data that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. You could talk over IRC uh, to people like in real time. Like, like It just seemed like magic. And it was like, where did this come from? Well, it came from a lot of people kind of working under the covers so to speak, uh, predominantly researchers in protocol design and networking design, um, some of them working for companies like Sun was still a pretty young company at that point, um, uh, or, or IBM, but a lot of them at universities, at research labs, at government agencies who said, we need to build network our systems together. And the best way to do that is not only to write protocols like uh, English language documents that des describe standards about how things should work, but to also write and give away the software that makes it work. So that's how we got the domain name system, right? It wasn't by a company called DNS Inc., right? It wasn't, uh, and ICANN was still a long ways away at that point. They didn't come around to the late 90s. It was by developers saying, let's build software and give it away so that everyone can help us fix the bugs in that software and improve it and modify it. That gives us the domain name system, gives us email with SMTP, right? Gives us Usenet news and IRC. So like open source software was what built the internet going back to, you know, the the late 70s, right? Um, uh, and that and so stepping into that culture, right, as web technology started to come around, I mean, Tim Berners-Lee gave away the source code to the CERN web server and to the CERN web browser that was written only to run on a Next machine. Um, uh, NCSA continued that tradition with Netscape, right, where they gave away the source, I'm sorry, not well, to, uh, to the um, NCSA Mosaic browser, right, um, to uh, versions of that. And so when um, the Apache project started, and we were really just taking the baton from the NCSA student developers who'd worked on the NCSA web server, that it felt like this was how you write software for the internet. Like proprietary software development was something you did for operating systems or you did for uh, you know big legacy enterprise-y kinds of things. But with this little thing that we're connecting here that could be a big thing, like it was only natural. It would seem unnatural at least to like try to sell this software. And frankly, those of us who were early days in Apache were having too much fun building websites to want to build a proprietary software company uh, and, and, and have to be entirely responsible for that software too. Too, right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, and then after you know a few years, you know Apache became uh, you know clearly shown to be running on like seventy percent of the web. Um, it was only then that we realized well there was um, some inherent legal jeopardy in um, only releasing.
introducing this as an informal mailing list of developers, right? Like we need to put some, uh, just enough structure in place, uh, not to become bureaucratic, not to not to create a, a centralization kind of effect, but to yeah. give it a home that uh, could outlast any one of us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when we created the Apache Software Foundation. It was uh, a few uh, about a year later, a couple of years later, that the Mozilla Foundation was started. Uh, the Linux Foundation kind of got it started in the early 2000s as well. But all of these are organizations that try to figure out how do we um, add just enough structure, just enough resources, and just enough legitimation, I guess, to this idea of people working together on common software, uh, that it becomes a sustainable thing, and enterprises respect it, can, people can use it, and, and, and use it instead of proprietary alternatives. Um, but at the, at the very beginning, it was just like the way software was built. I, I mean, that makes sense. And I actually uh, read an essay that on open source. Um, and in the essay, you were sort of describing like the formula for creating an open source uh, software business model. Mm. And you kind of said that it was a little bit like being Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And you kind of had to twist some gears here and like mix up the right amount of chemicals. I, what I was going to ask is like with a decentral, these decentralized organizations coming out now, um, how do you see uh, the, the role of like the Dr. Frankenstein? Does that make sense? Sure. Well, I think in any kind of organization of humans, right, of, of, of people as individuals or as companies getting together into a consortium, uh, I, you, you're always going to have politics. People love to use the word politics as a pejorative, right? Uh, you know, that, those are just politics. That's why something bad happened. It's just politics, right? But politics is how people work together to accomplish things, right? And, and we've been forming organizations and forming, you know, decision-making kind of things for thousands of years, and this has generally been a positive thing for society that we can do this, right? Um, otherwise, we'd devolve to some Hobbesian world of like everyone out for themselves and, you know, uh, uh, it just would be really ugly, right? We do have to find ways to work together. Now, it turns out that there's a lot of people who take advantage of people's willingness to work together uh, to find advantages for themselves in a way that is uh, create unfair kind of environment situations or where they break the rules because they think they can't get caught um, and, and, and uh, steal money from the system or steal resources from the commons, right? In a way that that um, other people don't because they act ethically and there's been a real breakdown in people's confidence in the world on how the world works uh, they saw the financial crisis hit in 2008 and very few people and very few organizations actually pay a penalty for the roles that they played in that right they see politicians uh, playing fast and loose with uh, uh, not, not just the promises they make to the to the public but with the way that the the governments are run right um, so there's this natural kind of inclination to go well humans are the problem structures of the problem, if we just wrote software that made things run automatically and, and, and such malfeasance impossible, then wouldn't we end up in some gorgeous kind of world? And I think there's a lot to that concept, but you don't need to turn the keys over to the algorithms to make that happen. Um, in fact, if you do that, I think you run the risk of whoever it is who writes those algorithms or whoever finds a, a bug in those algorithms, and all software has bugs, right? Let's just admit, like, every piece of software has a latent bug that will be discovered, and we should accept that and find ways to deal with that rather than pretend it can't happen. Um, if you go through this process, you realize at the end of the day, you still need human governance. 
that uh, at, at, you know can you know when there, when a bug is discovered and funds are stolen, right? You know can reverse those transactions, can bring the parties together to say what's the right thing for us to do as a collective, right? Uh, and that's ripe for abuse. That's ripe for for a dictator to step in. That's ripe for all sorts of problems. But um, the more well, we can't we, we can't give up the need to find ways as humans to to make decisions together. And so I think the more of governance, the more of business processes that we can make algorithmic and auditable uh, but using blockchain technology in addition to lots of others, um, uh, the better off we'll be because the more fair potentially we'll have the application of those rules to society. Um, but we still need human governance at the end of the day. Um, and, and I think even the public blockchain ledgers have that in the form of the leaders of those projects and the developers and the miners and others who collectively make a decision like let's bail out the DAO but let's not bail out the parity wallet. Uh, hack uh, victims. So these things happen, right? These, these, these human governance mechanisms happen, and you can either embrace that and figure out, let's w find ways to do that right, or say, or pretend that it doesn't exist, and then you end up with Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah, and I, I sort of see a idealism about that with uh, applying blockchain technology to law. People oftentimes get confused, and they think that they can create laws that will run on, them, on the smart contracts completely efficiently. In a lot of cases, the logic of a smart contract doesn't even follow the logic of, you know. There's a certain pre uh, precision required to software that most contracts intentionally avoid that precision because they do want to leave things up to su subject to interpretation. Um, but I think, I think if anything, the pendulum has swung too much in the way of, of uh, vague, vague terms and contracts. And I think, uh, uh, so, so the 2008 mortgage crisis, right, was really a crisis of paperwork. It was, you know, partly it was the irrational exuberance, but it was during the unwinding process when uh, all the holders of these toxic collateralized debt obligations wanted to get liquid that you you swamped these back office staffs with paperwork, uh, with missing missing uh, reference, dangling references to use a database term, right? You know, that um, had to be papered over literally by inventing paperwork out of thin air, by inventing signatures out of thin air, by um, minority owners in, uh, in CDOs like trying to get liquid by issuing eviction notices to people who had, you know, who owned their homes and had paid off the majority of their mortgages and were otherwise good, good, uh, uh, good risks. Um, you had all these, this kind of chaos that there are many people out there smarter than I and better plugged into this network than I am who are convinced that if many of these instruments, these CDOs, had been written as smart contracts, um, there would have been better visibility into the inherent risks that they were masking, um, uh, but you also would have had a more orderly unwinding process. And you might have had a, a bit of a pullback because the exuberance was what it was, but it would have been 20% rather than 50%. Um, and, and the other collateral damage that happened during that chaos would, might have been mitigated. And so now transpose that to these other scenarios where if we have a rapid collapse in something or we have chaos striking, we need government systems and technology systems, let me emphasize, that are resilient, that, that provide fail-safes, that um, help us understand where, where, where the bedrock is. And I think that's one thing blockchain technology can help us with. Given the fact that we've thoroughly explored your the Brian Bellendorf website, um, I wanted to ask about. Uh, so we, I noticed that you're you're passionate about open source ambient music. Um, also, that you are um, a free, you were an early frequenter of Burning Man, and you, ha I think your first project was sort of like a uh, kind of a classifieds uh, SF rep. 
uh, raves, which was sort of like a classifieds for the details or newsletter, maybe. Well, it, was, it was an email mailing list. It yeah. was like it was like a, almost like a Facebook group. Like, like it was, you know, before any of the social networks, the Internet was social. We just called it Usenet and IRC and email. Um, and an email reflector was a real simple way to pull together a self-selected group of people who wanted to have an ongoing conversation around some theme, around some topic. And so like when I landed at Berkeley in 91, there were already online e email lists around the um, rock band REM, around uh, a record label called 4AD, around any sort of technical topic you wanted, right? And so I joined these lists and then when I, because I had been going to all night dance music events in Los Angeles where I grew up as a high school student, you know, I was like the rave scene was kind of cool, I thought. And, and, uh, and so I started a list called SF Raves, which uh, quickly had about 500 subscribers to it. And before the year was out, we were putting on our own events on beaches outside Santa Cruz and things like that. And so a real community emerged. And, and uh, uh, we, were, we weren't writing software, but we were doing other constructive, creative things. And, and, and it was, yeah, it, it inspired a lot of other like mailing lists that are similar. I set up an archive of like rave flyers and DJ sets and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that started me down the path of going, what's, what is there that we can be doing with this, with, with this new technology called the internet to actually have a positive impact on society? Um, and Burning Man was one manifestation of that. I was not a founder of Burning Man, or it was not there early on, but in 95, I went to my first burn uh, and, and got a lot out of it and, and said, well, is there a better way to connect burners off the playa? Um, so worked with the org to set up their first like email blast. It's still around. It's called the Jackrabbit Speaks. Um, and, uh, uh, and then helped them set up the first website, helped them get plugged in a number of ways. But, uh, but yeah, uh, that, was, that was a real honor to be uh, close to. It seems like that meshes really well with technology and has for a while. Um, and I feel like a lot of where I'm hearing that started was Berkeley, the Berkeley campus in the 80s. Um, I think to some degree it's Berkeley and, and Stanford and kind of the academic culture in the Bay Area. Um, uh, but it's, I think, academic and alternative culture uh, uh, kind of any, worldwide in a way. Like um, it, the people who are, are given the freedom to think differently or try different ideas or whether that's musically, whether that's technologically, whether that's in, you know, doing a festival out in the middle of nowhere. Why would anyone go to an arts festival like five hours drive that, you know, costs a lot of money to get there? Um, and and has no uh, uh, corporate sponsorship, has no buying or selling, you know, it's not even bartering, it's a gift economy, you know, that you're intended to bring all your food with you and shelter and then take it all home when you're done too. Like that that kind of uh, experimentation, not just with art, but with like economic models and, and such, um, is still alive today, I think, in these technology movements. And I think uh, uh, in some ways, blockchain technology benefits and inherits a bit of that kind of techno optimism. Like it's been a long time since I've been optimistic about a technology, right? Um, <laughs> frankly, like we went through 10 years of like increase, you know, tracking and increase in uh, the surveillance industry, really, like the surveillance economy, which is what a lot of the ad-based uh, internet economy is built on, right? And it got kind of depressing because the internet got a bit more centralized over time. And uh, I think blockchain technology, a lot of people have you know, transmitted their, or brought, or translated their, their, their optimistic uh, uh, kind of views on how the future could be uh, into this space. Um, uh, and some of that is bogus, some of that is woo-woo, but some of that is going to be really interesting and fascinating too. And that's, that's a real positive creative energy to, 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 to be flowing through this industry. Cool. Well, thank you very much for talking, Brian. Appreciate it. No, thank you.
Again, this is Dave and Rick. Thanks for listening to Distributed Dialogues. We hope you'll tune in next time where we'll discuss privacy and online identity.